RipperCast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 12, The East Ender, John Bennett and a Photographic History of the East End. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas. With us today is Robert McLaughlin in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Allie Ryder is in Charlottesville, Virginia. Mike Covell is our man in Hull. And our special guest today is John Bennett in North London. Hello, John. Hello. And thank can you, you hear for, me okay? Yes, we can hear you just fine. Thanks for being Lovely. on today. Now, John is a photographer, researcher, and enthusiast of photographs of the East End. He is the author of the upcoming book, E1, A Journey Through Whitechapel and Spitalfields, Past and Present. And uh, Howard Brown couldn't be with us today because uh, we were recording this on a Tuesday and it conflicts with his schedule, but uh, he's here in spirit. So, um, anyway, um, th- thanks again, John, for being on the show today. And Thank you. you've been at the task of uh, photographing the East End for quite a while. When did you start taking pictures of the East End, and what sites interested you in the beginning? Oh, um, I started when I was 18. Um, I'm 40 now. So we're looking at about 1985-86. Basically the whole reason for getting into it was because I was interested in the Whitechapel murders. That's how I got into the subject in the first place when I was about six or seven. And then when I was sort of old enough to be able to get on a bus and travel into central London on my own, uh, or with a friend or whatever it was, um, I was able to go down there. And I, I had a very, very, very bad camera. And this was about 1986, and the, the very first place I ever took a photograph of uh, was either Durwood Street, as it was, or Mitre Square, one of the two. I can't remember which. I, I still have the photographs here. Um, Durwood Street was particularly attractive because it was um, it was very derelict and had lots of atmosphere. Uh, Mitre Square looks pretty much like it does today, only it didn't have the, the flower bed. And uh, the warehouses in Mitre Street were still there. But, um, yeah, so I sort of went round and just sort of took photographs with a very limited camera, with very limited amount of film in it. I think each cartridge had 12 shots in it. Um, and the didn't come out. Um, but so, yeah, so we're looking at like the mid-1980s, which doesn't seem that long ago. Um, but a lot has changed since then. So, yeah, that was my... The first time I started taking the photographs, and it was basically because I was interested in Jack the Ripper. You briefly mentioned Mitre Square, which you said hasn't changed, and then concluded by saying a lot has changed. What are some of the major mm. changes you've noticed? Oh, um, well, yeah, well, some some of the places haven't changed at all. Um, Berner Street, Henrique Street, whatever you want to call it, Enrique Street, I don't know whether you say it in the French way, um, that hasn't changed at all. But that I don't think I think that's been pretty much like that since the early nineteen uh, early twentieth century, sort of nineteen oh nine. I think they pulled all those Duckfields Yard down, things like that. Um, Mitre Square looked like it does now, only it didn't have the flower bed. Um, Hanbury Street looks the same. I mean, they all look they've all all look the same. Since I've been going there, but the one that has changed the most was Durwood Street, um, Bucks Row which when I first went there, and there's a few other people who, who I know who've been there in that, in that sort of, in that decade, um, 
who remember as it as it was, it has changed a lot. Um, most of Durwood Street was demolished in the very early 1970s, and they never did anything to it until about 15 years ago. So um, when I first went there, you had the board school, which I think everybody knows about, but it was an empty shell, and the winos used to sort of break into it and live in it. And I think there was a fire at one point. You had Essex Wharf, which is sort of known as where um, Walter Perkis lived, opposite the murder spot. And then next to it, you had a 1920s building uh, called Brady House, which used to be the the Brady Boys Club. And um, that was derelict as well. In fact, they, everything, everything was derelict. Um, how much um, um, could... Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Are yeah, and but basically... Oh no, yeah, um, yeah. So basically, it was all it was all derelict, and then where the cottages and the warehouses were, there was nothing there at all. Just um, just sort of uh, what do you call it corrugated iron, and it, it was a real state. It was a real mess, and it had been like that for ten years, and it stayed like that for ten years after I first went there. But now it's got modern flats on one side. It's got a, a brand new, well, I say brand new, one of the newest schools in London on the, the other side. Um, it's totally different. The whole atmosphere has changed. In those days, say 20 odd years ago, uh, it was horrible, to be quite frank with you. <laughs> Very atmospheric. Now, in your upcoming book, E1, um, how much of, of is, is a Jack the Ripper book, and, and how much of it is, is just a, a, tip, a general book on the East End? And, and maybe you can explain. Um, how uh, the writing of the book and putting it together came about? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's Jack the Ripper is in it. It's n- it's not really a Ripper book. It's um, it's more to do the, the the clue is in the title E1. So it's really about that postcode, that London postcode, um, and it's really about Whitechapel and Spitalfield. So um, when I first started writing something about this subject, it, it was about Jack the Ripper, and it was just a very naive 18-year-old paraphrasing what he had, what he had got out of Donald Rumbelow's Complete Jack the Ripper and Autumn of Terror, which were the two books I had in those days. Um, looking back at it now, I still have the old manuscripts. It, it sort of reads quite well, but I sort of lost interest in it. Um, it, was tr- it was going to be a sort of a factual account with no suspects. I'm not a great fan of suspect theories. Um, and then I think you got things like Paul Begg's The Uncensored Facts in the late 80s. I think I remember that one. There's no, there's no market for it now. It's been done. Um, went off into sort of more towards the East End type thing. And what was developing was a sort of the, the Whitechapel murders and where they were all where they all took place and what's happened to the places since so that people can go there and see what happened to the you know, see what's become of the of the sites because they've all changed. Um, and then it became more of an East End book. And then a couple of years ago, when I picked it up again, um, it literally become an entire book about that area, that Whitechapel and Spitalfields area. And you sort of you can almost take the book with you and walk around. Everything's done in a certain order. So the the murder sites are there. Some of them are, and some of them aren't. Um, Mitre Square isn't there because I, I class that as being in the city. Uh, Pinchin Street, Chamber Street, uh, Burner Street um, is not in there because it's slightly off the beaten track. 
Castle Alley's not in there, partly because my publisher said, look, there's too much Jack the Ripper. We've, there's so much stuff about Jack the Ripper. Can you trim it down a little bit? So I felt, okay, fine. And there were so many other things that um, I could put in it to make it more of a rounded East End book, but still keep that in. So um, the, the Ripper murders are in there. Not all of them, um, just where you stumble across them and he's unavoidable um like i said before he it's like a letters through a stick of um seaside rock you know, wherever you go wherever you break it open you're going to come across something to do with jack the ripper somewhere so so he's there now are there any other um historical events uh that you uh mention in your book besides jack the ripper like do you point out locations that have to do with the craze or oh not off <laughs> Yes, um, yeah, plenty. In fact, the entire book is pretty much um, based on... Uh, so whether it's the Whitechapel murders, uh, um, it, it mentions the Working Lads Institute and things like that, but it also mentions the like, places where Stalin stayed when he came over uh, in 1907 with Lenin and, and all that lot. The, uh, I can't remember what they're called now the social democratic labor party or whatever it was in in the 1907 they came over and debated their um manifesto for creating the russian revolution and they did that in fullborn street which was off of um whitechapel road um lots of things uh the tower house the Roughton house where george orwell and jack london stayed um Right down to the fact that there's a there's a small music studio at the bottom of Brick Lane where Queen recorded bits of Bohemian Rhapsody, so I'm sort of stuck little bits of that in as well. So little things like that, but also so quite yeah the Crazer in it, uh, the Blind Beggar pub where um, Ronnie Cray shot George Cornell. That's in it. The Siege of Sydney Street, the Elephant Man, lots lots of things like that. Um, it's basically, if it happened there in the area I've covered, I've tried to mention it. Now, uh, John, you're one of the, the few people who consistently take some uh, night shots of uh, the East End, which turn out very atmospheric. I mean, a lot of the shots I see are during the daytime, and uh, 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 some, of the, some of the shots you've taken, and people can see these in, in Ripperologist 86 and 88 and, and elsewhere mm -hmm. online, uh, some of them make the hair on the back of my neck stand out. <laughs> I, you know, I, I've been to a couple of the streets, and, uh, you know, most people that go there, I mean, maybe the most atmospheric street they'll probably visit is Gunthorpe Street, the old Georgia. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. like, if you go south of Commercial Road where Elizabeth Stride was murdered, you'll find Pynchon Street and Chamber Street and places like that that are really atmospheric. Um, could you tell us some uh, places that you like to go to that aren't, that aren't necessarily ripper places, but are they just give you, give you a nice sense of, of mood or place? Um, there's plenty. There's plenty of them. Um, Gunthorpe Street is one, uh, especially at night. Um, I think it takes a certain amount of pluck to go up Gunthorpe Street with a tripod and a camera that's what you think is reasonably expensive, and set it all up and take long exposure shots. It's, 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 I don't have a major camera, so I can do it all quite quickly, but. Uh, Gunthorpe Street is one, but there are quite a lot of shots of Gunthorpe Street around. So, um, but I have done it. Um, certainly, I've found that where, wherever there are railway arches, 
Um, you always get a certain mood. There's there's some railway arches up at the top of Brick Lane. There's also those ones like Pinching Street, like you mentioned. They're always good for atmospheric shots. Chamber Street is very good for that sort of thing. I mean, that's that sort of the Ripper murder sites. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've taken a photograph, a couple of photographs of a used pub at the top of Brady Street. It's got nothing to do with the Whitechapel murders or anything like that. But it's lit by a single street lamp, and, it, and it, it's it's a bit like how things were about twenty odd years ago when they were things had been sort of derelict for a bit, and they didn't get tarted up or jazzed up as a as a wine bar. And it's this derelict pub, and I think that was quite a successful shot. So that that, that was one. Certainly, where um, railway arches are. You get that sort of thing. Um, what was the other one? I mean, things like Durwood Street used to be flat, but now they just look like a sort of a residential street. Uh, I wish Woods Buildings was still open. I mean, people know about Woods Buildings, which is run sort of um, Whitechapel Road to Winthrop Street by the Bald School. That that's the classic thing. But there are the odd little sort of alleyways, certainly between Bishopsgate and Petticoat Lane, and what's one called uh, Catherine Wheel Alley. So yeah, there's still areas around. If you want to in old style, you know, Victorian look, <coughs> they're there. When someone writes a book, they normally have a theme or a something that they're attempting to convey with this book. When you do a book of photographs, specifically your book of photographs, what's your hope for this book? What's the theme? What do you want people to take your book and do with it or see from it? Um, it's actually, actually, there's, it's, if, I don't know if anybody knows The Streets of East London by Billy, Bill Fishman, William Fishman. It's uh, quite a few people I know like it. Um, yeah, it's a good it's, book. Uh, and Nicholas Breach yeah, took the photos in that. Yeah, that's right. Nicholas, that was a big in. in my early days of being interested in the actual area, um, and people that now publish that book, the publishers that now publish the Streets of East London, because it was originally published by Duckworth, uh, is Five Leaves, and they're the people that are publishing my book. And we agreed early on that that book would be a template for this. So there is plenty of information in it. So it's not just like a book of photographs, but I'm, I'm hoping that they're, well, I've done quite a lot of photographs for it. Most of them are mine. Um, I'm hoping that the two will sort of complement each other. So there's a lot to look at and a lot to read. Um, to be honest with you, the whole idea behind it was, let's have a book. Personally, I go walking around the East End quite a lot. And in the old days, I used to sort of go along the same routes. So it's almost like the old routes I used to take, um, starting off at the Blind Beggar and ending up at Liverpool Street Station or something like that. So it literally leads you from one place to another. So there's a section which is all about the Whitechapel Road, and there's a section and things that are around it. There's a section about Brick Lane and what's around it, a section about Commercial Street and what's around it, maybe a little bit of um, Petticoat Lane and what's around it. So it sort of covers certain areas, and but literally you could almost walk the book if if you had it on you. Um, but it obviously goes into a bit more depth than that. That was the idea behind it. Thank you. Hi, John. Um, Hello, Mike. 
how often do you visit the murder sites and do you go out with a set plan in your head um, of a way you're going to go or do you just sort of strike it lucky? <laughs> I strike it lucky, to be honest with you. Um, it's funny, um, I go down there, I get off at Liverpool Street Station and then I walk and I walk and I walk and I walk. And sometimes I'll see something and think, oh, I'll take a photograph of that. Sometimes I just go for a walk. It's almost like I get down there sometimes and recharge the old batteries, as it were. Um, but it's funny, um, Jane Coram recently got in touch with me and she's doing an article uh, and one asked me if I had any very recent shots to the murder sites. And to be honest with you, I don't. I don't really have many shots of the murder sites because so many other people have taken photographs of them. I tend not to take pictures of them. I, I go to all these other places. So um, I don't tend to go to them anymore. Um, when we did the London job, which was two years ago, uh, with Phil Hutchinson, Rob Clack, Natalie Seven and Monty and people like that, um, that was the first time I'd ever been to Pinchin Street and Chamber Street, to my shame. So, um, which is an eye-opener for me because it was like, whoa, you know, hey, this is where it happened, did it? But um, I tended not to focus on the murder sites after a certain amount of time because you see the photographs of them so often, modern ones as well as old ones. So, yeah, normally I look for interesting things just generally in the area. Now, um, on the Casebook website on the East End Photographs thread, uh, you, you post up some pretty interesting photographs that uh, aren't yours that you've um, mm -hmm. come across in books and stuff. And speaking of the murder sites, one of the uh, photographs that you've posted recently was a photograph of the backside of George Yard buildings. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah. Um, basically, for my book, someone, someone suggested to me, I think it might be my publisher, said, get yourself down to Toynbee Hall, uh, which I think we all know about, Toynbee Hall in Commercial Street. Um, they have a library, and apparently the, the, the library also has an archive, which is current, or when I first got there, which is only a few months ago, it was go undergoing organisation. And um, I thought, oh, see what they've got, because they do have, I was looking initially for photographs of Toynbee Hall. Lost. But they also have a small, very small section on the East End. Now, I knew for a fact that um, George Yard Buildings, I'm not sure so how soon after the murder of Martha Tabram, but they became integrated into Toynbee Hall. They became like um, lodgings for the students that came from Oxford and places like that that were working in the community. And they became known as um, Middle College or College, uh, Middle College, I think it was called. Um, and I think on the old photographs that I've seen, uh, certainly Stuart Evans' photograph, there's a little um, little plaque above the arch of the entrance, and I think it says Charles Booth House. So it's called Charles Booth House, but also Middle College. Uh, and um, I went there with a sort of a, a certain idea of, of seeing a few old photographs of Time B Hall, but I knew certainly that. George Yard was part of it, chance me arm, because you never know, there might be an old, some photographs of George Yard buildings that hadn't been seen before. And sure enough, I think about the third or fourth photograph I pulled out was the back of George Yard buildings, and it was called, it said it called it Middle College. Now, somebody, uh, in the book, Toynbee Hall, the first hundred years, there is a photograph of the courtyard of Toynbee Hall, 
and you do see the back of George Yard buildings, but not very clearly. As you've obviously seen the photograph, you know that it's it's someone standing in front of it. And uh, Martha Tabron was murdered on the first floor landing. I'm, I'm just sort of thinking, the landing you see, the first floor landing you see clear as day, was that where it happened? So in, in some ways that could be the first actual fo clear photograph, certainly, of Martha Tabram's murder site. But that's how I found it. Um, initially with an idea of looking at Toynbee Hall, but knowing full well that hopefully that, that something would, would crop and see before, and, and hey presto, it turned up. I put it on the website because I'm terrible at keeping a secret. Because I was quite I was quite excited about it, and some people said to me, "Oh, why don't you keep it back for your book?" And it is going in the book, if I have my way. And it, but it'll be a much better quality picture. Um, but I, I thought I'll, I'll put this up because you know people would like to see it, and I'm I'm, I'm hopeless like that. I can't keep things back really. <laughs> well, one of the most so interesting as one of the most interesting aspects of that photograph is that it shows that the landings of the building were. Uh, exposed to the out, outdoors um, which I don't know yeah. that any of us are, I'm sure some people had realized that but me um, I, I until I saw that photograph I didn't realize that it, that it was essentially um, an outdoor um, murder site um, covered by a roof of course but you know they and, and then mm. if you compare that with the photograph of the boy, Standing on the steps leading up to the first floor landing, you clear, now you can clearly see that um, on the other side of the fence behind him is um, is would look out to the back courtyard. I imagine. Um, yeah. And and I know that um, you know there's been representations of Tabram's murder in the past, and uh, uh, there's a, the, the illustration that appeared in um, the Police Gazette or whatever it was at the time. And it all seems uh, people had this idea that it was in a confined space. Whereas, looking mm. at your photo, it's apparent that um, this would have taken place outdoors. So, with an earshot mm. of not only the neighboring um, apartments, but with a, 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 you know, assuming the ones above it, several you know, several f floors up, the ones below, you know, if it was indeed yeah. um, an out kind of an outdoor event. Well, the photograph, it does suggest the landing. It's talking about everyone, everyone says the first floor landing, the first floor landing. And you look at it, and it's, the landings are outside. How much of a landing is inside those individual arches on each floor? Uh, it's hard. You mentioned the photograph of the little boy standing on what? was believed to be the first floor landing of George Yard's buildings. This was um, this was sort of investigated by Phil Hutchinson and Rob Clack for their book. His book, um, The East End Then and Now, or something it was called. And uh, I think they literally realised it wasn't George Yard buildings, it was the other block next door. Oh, OK. Uh, George's house... Um, actually, is in a bit of dispute at the moment. <laughs> okay, I, I didn't realize that that uh, that photograph had been called into question. Um, yeah, I've, I've had, had the ump about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Well, it's obvious that photographs like with Jonathan saying that they can lead you to new information that you didn't previously have or a new visualization of how a scene looked. How exactly do you think photographs will help us in our understanding of the Ripper case? And um, what do you, you know, how do you think that modern photographs can help us in an understanding of the case? Um, certainly photographs, old photographs, where they show us, the, say, the murder scenes as they were. There's not that many, but fortunately a lot of the murder scenes stayed pretty much intact for a good, you know, 60, 70, even 80 years after the, after the murders. It, it allows people 120 years on to sort of put, put things into their right perspective. Um, as far as, I mean, I think pe people are interested in seeing what the places look like, um, mostly because so many of them have changed. How taking the photographs of the places now affects our understanding of the case, I think, is a different thing because it has changed so much. I actually believe that, you know, 40 years' time when the East End has changed again, in whatever way it's going to change, and I mean, that's another story. Um, I think people will still be interested in the Whitechapel murders. And those people, 40 years on, some people probably who haven't been born yet, uh, will look upon, you know, the photographs that are being taken now as being like, oh, look, you know, these really old photographs, look at these, you know. And um, give them a bit of an understanding of what the place was like 40 years ago in the same way that many of us get all sort of excited when we see a new photograph of 29 Hanbury Street or whatever it was before it was demolished because only that was demolished in 1970. In fact, a lot of us came a cropper, as they say, in the very early 1970s uh, in a certain time of when I was redeveloping the area. And uh, so we get very excited about that because obviously those photographs show them pretty much as they were, but... There are things now where, like, um, which is doesn't look like it's changed much. It's still got the atmosphere. It still looks very Victorian. I don't believe many of the buildings that are there now were there in 1888. I think even the oldest-looking buildings are just just after that. I think someone could correct me if I'm wrong, but but it has that atmosphere, and people like to see that. And it, it's it's still secluded. It's not been and things like that or just been wiped out completely so I think yeah in, in 40 50 years people will be looking at the photographs that you know the modern ones that have been taken this year and last year by all sorts of people and go ah oh wow that's what it looked like then because that's certainly what's happened to me looking back at photographs I've took and I took 25 years ago 20 years ago um, you know, there's that constant change, but I think people's interest in the Whitechapel murders doesn't change. And when people are interested in the Whitechapel murders, often they're quite interested in what the places used to look like. Hi, John. I wanted to ask you about uh, a day in 2006 where you, Philip Hutchinson, Rob Clack, Natalie Severn, and yourself went to a tour of various East End sites, something called Dub the London Job. Um, uh, one of the more interesting uh, places that you stopped at was uh, Shoreditch uh, St. Leonard's Church, and that's where Mary Kelly's body was taken to at the mortuary beside the church. Um, but you went on a very interesting tour uh, by the Reverend Paul. Could you tell us a bit about that? Right, yeah. Um, 
there was a sort of it'd been arranged sort of all meet up. I think it was um, various people sort of saying, right, who wants to go on the London job? Was how it became known. Um, and eventually, it was Philip Hutchinson, Robert Clack, Natalie Seven, me, uh, Neil Bell, and um, we sort of met up. But Philip, I think a couple of days or the week before, had, had been to Shoreditch Church, St Leonard's Church, and they'd been talking. I think he'd been talking to the vicar there, or the Reverend Paul, and um, had managed to arrange for us to have a tour of St Leonard's Church, and I think mainly for the. Partly for the reason because of the mortuary, and there is a, a building on the site of where the mortuary was. It's not the same one, um, but thankfully, I mean, Father Paul took us around the entire church, rang the bell for us, took us down into the crypt, and told us all the stories. I mean, he's—I think he's been the the vicar there for 25 years, and um, so yeah, I mean, he had lots of stories. I think what what the the great one was when he told us about one of the first times he went into the crypt and there was no lights in there or anything like that he had this huge bunch of keys he was given a huge bunch of keys and was trying them all out and he went down into the crypt and um, he went into some sort of like a, an arch there's, there's lots of arches under the crypt um, obviously the foundations of the church and he was standing on what he felt was earth and he said suddenly that in the pitch blackness the earth began to move and uh, he was absolutely terrified, didn't know what was going on. And uh, it wasn't until afterwards when he went to get some light on it, he realised that there were coffins underneath the earth uh, in the crypt and they'd been covered over. But his movement of walking across this earth was the first sort of movement that had been there for decades or whatever it was. And the coffins began to sort of rise up out of the earth. And um, he said it was absolutely terrifying. I think one of our number got got the creeps at that point and uh, but yeah so he had some different stories to tell about the church the history of it and uh, yeah it was, it was a nice nice bonus bonus feature as they say good day out and um, you were, you've also been um, able to view the September 17th letter is that correct? Mm-hmm. yeah indeed could you tell us about your visit to that? yeah that was um it's funny because I've never heard of the September the seventeenth. I know it's sort of been in the in the eye of uh, people in the river, in, in the field uh, who are up on these things for you know nearly twenty years at that point. And I'd sort of only heard of it from what I'd seen on Facebook, and I thought, ooh, um, I, I, it wasn't in um, Stuart Evans and Keith Skinner's Letters from Hell, and. Uh, so I didn't sort of know about that either from then. So, but I heard about it and I thought, well, I'm just interested to see this thing. I'd, I'd recently, just for my book, I'd re- just before then, I asked um, the public national archives if it was possible if I could see the dear boss letter because I had an idea of having something in the book about what it felt like to actually see the real thing in real life. And after a lot of wrangling, they said yes, okay, and I did go and see it. And uh, then. There was an idea that I thought to myself, oh, maybe I'll just have a look at this letter because all the all the photographs I've seen of it were black and white. Um, up to that point, anyway, and I just thought, well, I'll go and have a look, see what it looks like, you know, look at it back and front, you know, see if it's all sorts of like a sort of a, a bit of an armchair forensic investigation, if you like. 
and uh, and sure enough, because I think because I sort of mentioned to them that I'd seen the, I've been allowed in to see something else that was quite a sensitive document, as they call them. Um, I was allowed in there, and it was in a big file. Uh, one of the things that people go on about is you know the fact that the, the ink, the colour of the ink looks modern. Uh, whether it's ballpoint pen or whatever, I don't know, but it's just, it looks modern. It's in that vibrancy. And uh, funny enough, I, I was going through the file, waiting for this letter to turn up, and when it did turn up, I laughed. It was like, ha, 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 ah, like that. It was almost as if to say, oh, you've got to be joking. It, it, it did really stand out as a, it was like a sore thumb, um, a square peg in a round hole, all these other sort of documents in black ink and royal blue ink and, and that, and there was this sort of really scratchy, blue thing. It didn't look particularly dated, all the rest of it. So I gave it a good look over. I sort of looked at the back and saw if there was any embossing to see if it was written in a certain type of pen or whatever. But I did find out that the National Archives had, had punched a hole in it and sealed it in, well not sealed it in, but put it in with a piece of string with the rest of this file. Um, I don't believe it was, that was the file it was originally found in. Um, I might be wrong in that one. Uh, but they'd also put a number on it uh, as well to make it look like it sort of fitted in with some other uh, correspondence that was in the file. And um, suddenly it was like as if it was had always been there, which we all know we all knew it hadn't been. Um, the other photographs didn't have any serial numbers on them or anything like that. So that was a little bit controversial. It was like the, the National Archives, well, the naughty thought, oh no, that should go in the middle there. These other letters sound like they're talking about this one, which they weren't, they were talking about something else, and put the serial number on it. And uh, I think it was what, the one before it was 103, and then it was 104. And what they've done, I think, is they've put an A on 103, and then put a 103B on the September 17th letter. So it was all a little bit, from that point of view anyway, it was a little bit hooky, but, but the whole, the whole, looking at the letter and, and the phrasing of it, I mean, it's literally got, it's got everything in it from all the other famous letters, which is why I'm very, very suspicious of it. But, uh, yeah, it was quite, you know, it generated quite a lot of argument on the boards, and I sort of got dragged into it a little bit. But it was supposed to be a very innocent, this is you know, someone who's never seen it before, what what do they think? And uh, I came up with my my um, conclusions in that uh, issue of Ripper Notes. And uh, and that's how, it, that's how it came to be. Now, what was security like um, in, inside the room that you were viewing the letter? I mean, as, uh, could you have uh, placed uh, uh, something in, in there unobserved or taken something out if you wished to? Uh, well, to be honest with you, I mean, the, all, the security at the National Archives tends to happen when you go in and then when you come out. I found that in, on both occasions, when I saw the Dear Boss letter and, and that one, um, on the face of it, there isn't any security in the room that you're looking at it in. There, there, there are okay, CCTV cameras, um, but, yeah, otherwise you're left to get on with it. Someone, you go in, you tell them, you give them a bit of paper, say that's, that's the file that you wanted. Someone disappears and they come back with this box and it's got the file in it. And uh, they drop it on the put down on the desk for you, and they say, "Okay, if you need anything else, just ring the bell." And off they go. You know, they disappear. So, so when I saw the dear boss after there was there was an elderly couple in there, looking at something else in the same room, 
But when I saw the, the September 17th letter, I think I was pretty much on, I was on my own. And uh, believe it or not, there, there were one or two documents in that file that were loose. They weren't tied in. Uh, one of them was a, a letter from the, the Home Secretary about something. I thought, well, here's a letter from an ex-home secretary in Victoria's reign. It's quite possible I could have slipped it in my pocket or whatever. Not that I would, you know. Getting something in, um, I think, well, I don't know, you, you probably could do. Um, I don't know what the security was like in the old days, before, you know, before it moved to queue and all that. But now you swipe a card, you have transparent plastic bags, you're not allowed pencils, they search the bag when you go in. You don't take your coat with you, you get lockers to put anything unnecessary in. So security going in and security coming out certainly is tight. They, they look through your notebooks to make sure you've not slipped anything in the notebooks. But they don't search you physically. So, I mean, I'm sure if someone was canny enough these days, they could slip something in or they could slip something out again. But, um, I mean, that's not tempting fate. That's not me being provocative. But it's, it's a possibility. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's, that's what happened with the 17th of September letter. Um, personally, I'm, I, I communicated with Peter McClelland and he told me exactly what he was, he's told everybody else about the, the way he discovered the letter. So um, I'm not sort of provoking anything there. But yeah, you, you probably could get the odd thing in. But security in and out is tight. But once you're in there, you're on your own, really. Okay. As someone who spent a couple of decades preserving the East End on film, are you happy to leave your preservation efforts to photographs? And do you cringe when you see the East End, the old buildings torn down to give rise to modern structures? Or do you just view that as progress? Um, I have to be honest. I don't... I don't, I don't um, I don't get very worked up about it for some reason. I used to. I used to a long while ago when, when there were a lot of sort of old buildings that were just being pulled down. Um, you know, I used to think, oh, God, you know, it was, it's like the title of that thread that I brought up on Facebook, why can't the East End be like it was? Well, I mean, obviously it can't. I don't believe it can. Um, I think the days... There, there was a time, um, there's a fantastic book... <coughs> I don't know if anyone's seen, it's called uh, Spitalfield's The Battle for Land. Um, it was written in the sort of late 1980s, uh, early 90s, late 1980s. And it was at the end of a period from about 1966 to 81, where Tower Hamlets and the London councils were basically finding all the slums in the East End and just pulling them down. And uh, lots of places, and I think that's probably why we lost a lot of the murder sites, because they, they were considered slums, Bucks Row... Hanbury Street was certainly falling to pieces and the rest of it. So we lost George R. buildings and stuff like that. So we lost a lot of those in that decade between 65 and late 70s, early 80s. Um, having said that, now we're sort of in a funny situation where people are sort of talking about the fact that um, the city of London is trying to take over uh, coming in from the west, and, and there are big developments going on. There's a big one in Allgate at the moment, and um, Mitre Square is apparently going to be pulled down soon, and something really big. I don't really like the, the new modern tower block, um, not modern tower block, but this sort of shiny glass office type thing. I think they're very, they just smack too much of like, you know, this is the big 
city moving in and it's, you know, everything's got to go, folks. You know, we want to wipe everything out. Having said that, we are in a good, better position now, I think, because a lot of times, uh, a lot, lot of buildings that possibly could have gone have been preserved. They've been turned into flats and things like that. But Routon House in Philgate Street, the Bucks Road Build School, um, a great one is the um, Providence Road Night Refuge opposite uh, what was Dorset Street. That you know that that been disused for years. In fact, all these buildings have been disused for years, and instead of pulling them down like they would have done years ago, they're preserving them. So that that's keeping them keeping them. To be quite honest with you, a great example of that is um, Wentworth Dwellings, which we all know about. Um, that was condemned for demolition in 1965 and it took them it took them 14 years 15 or 16 years to clear the buildings so they were clear by 82, 1982 and then they were derelict for 7 years and then they preserved them and now they've been um, renovated now you know they're, they're still there um, probably if that had happened you know if they'd have been pulled down 30 years ago that would have been it but so we've still got Wentworth Dwellings for example so the upshot of this is, I don't get too worried about it because, yeah, like Ali, Ali like you say, it's sort of progress. I don't necessarily like it, but I think we are in a good, good position, better position at the moment because of the, the way that sort of people are trying to preserve these old buildings and and just use the actual structures of them rather than just pull them down and stick up a load of concrete in their place. All right, Mike and Hall, do you have a question? Yeah, short course. Uh, in Hull, there are several laws in place to stop people taking photos of transportation interchanges and shopping centres. Have you ever had any trouble whilst you've been in the East End taking any of your photos? Uh, well, what, from official authorities, you mean, rather than winos? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've had plenty of trouble from winos. <laughs> got some great stories about that. But, um, no, um, not in the East End, no. Um, I think it's sort of... It's outside of the Ring of Steel, sort of they call them, the city of London. They, I think since there were some big terrorist uh, bombings in the early 90s, late 80s, I think, um, they sat this thing called the Ring of Steel. So if you're walking up Houndsditch or Duke's Place in Mighty Square, there's a couple of booths there for policemen to sit in. Uh, you don't see them that much these days. Inside the city, inside that Ring of Steel, yes, I've, I've tried to take photographs of some sort of, you know, some of the really big office blocks like the um, West Tower, which at one point was the biggest, was the tallest building in, in the country um, before they built Canary Wharf. And uh, a guy shouted out for me, he must have been about 300, 400 yards away, I couldn't even tell where the voice was coming from. He went, Oi! Oi, no! Oi! Stop it, mate! Oi! He was like that. I thought, where's that coming from? And I could see this security guard waving at me while I was trying to take this photograph, and it was. You know, you're, you're photographing a sort of a, a big, important office building, um, obviously with um, an eye to sticking a bomb under it. So they don't let you. But in the East End, and also in Canary Wharf at the moment, you can't take photographs in in, in that area near Canary Wharf. Um, two two big, huge fat policemen with a dog will come up to you and say, "Sorry, go across the bridge and take a photograph elsewhere," uh, for similar reasons because it's a, a big business centre. It's quite an important place. But the East End. No, you know, unless it's someone saying they don't take pictures of me, man, or something like that. But I've never had that, so so no, no, I don't get trolled. Not in the East End, but in the city, yes. 
Um, John, um, back to your book, E1. Um, what's the, how many photographs are, are contained in this book, if you have any idea? And um, what's, what's the, uh, the appearance of the book going to be? Is it going to in a hardback uh, or paperback? Or uh, you had mentioned that you could bring it along on your walks in the East End, and I was just yeah, curious as to the size. Hmm. Um, we mentioned earlier on, I don't know if we, we got it, but we mentioned earlier on about the streets of East London, Bill Fishman's book, which has been in print since 1979. Um, the publishers that are publishing mine now publish that. It's going to be that sort of format. We agreed, our publisher and I, we agreed that it was um, that would be like a benchmark format to work from. So it is going to be paperback, A4 size, uh, lots of photographs, but lots, hopefully lots of you know, the text. There's a lot of text in it as well. So there's a lot of photographs. Um, I think it's divided up into about nine or ten sections. And I think each one has up to can have up to eight photographs in it. Some of which could be full size. Um, we're, we're just done the second draft. Uh, my publisher, the publisher's got the photographs now. So whether he wants some more or not, I don't know. But some of them will be big, some of them will be small. So, so we're looking at about maybe 60, 60 photographs in the book, which in some cases is not a lot. But if they're going to be like full size, and I may get asked for some more because the streets of East London has quite a lot of photographs in it. But most most of them are my own. Some of them will be uh, archive photographs from Tower Hamlets local history library or the London Metropolitan Archives places like that so and a lot of them are mine that have been taken very recently there's a couple that I took about 10 years ago of um, Routon House Tower House in Fieldgate Street and it was derelict which is a fantastic subject and I managed to find one of them old ones so that that's probably going to be in it as well so yeah you're looking at about 60 70 photographs I think but it's very picture heavy all right wonderful um, now, what are your uh, favorite Jack the Ripper-themed books? Jack the Ripper-themed books? Um, I'm not a great fan of suspect books. Um, I buy them, don't get me wrong, but um, you know, when I get, see something that prop, props up in the shop that I've not seen before or not had before or not, not come across, I, I'll try and pick it up. I, you know, I've got a big shelf full of Jack the Ripper books. Probably my, I've got a soft spot for the ones that first got me into it in the first place, which is Ultimate Terror and Donald Rumbelow's Complete Jack the Ripper. Funny enough, I've, I've got a Complete Jack the Ripper I've had since 1981, and a couple of weeks ago I bumped into Donald Rumbelow on his tour and harassed him and said, hello, can I, I haven't been on the tour, can I have a, have a copy, buy a copy of your book and sign it for me, and it's the new updated one, so that's, that's a nice one to add. Uh, because that's what I sort of brought up on that. But I'm, I'm looking at my shelf now. Um, things like Paul Begg's The Facts and Philip Sugden, I think they're great because, as far as I'm aware, they just sort of really say it how it was. They're, they're not very suspect-based. And Jack the Ripper A to Z, my one's falling apart. It's, um, I mean, I think that's terrific. Once I pick that up, I end up flying all around it. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to the, the new, new edition of that. Um, Letters from Hell, um, Stuart Evans, and, you know, Stuart Evans' books always sort of get me, the source book is a good one. So there's a, there's a lot of them, but also I, I, I quite like the, um, the final 
Final Solution, which is probably the first one I read all the way through from start to finish, rather than picking away at it over time. And I think I mentioned this before to somebody, Ivor Edwards' is, uh, Satanic, Jack the Ripper's Satanic Rituals, or whatever it was, um, just because they were just interesting to read. I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily agree with the theories, and, and the Maybrick one as well. Totally disagree with the theories behind them, but for some reason they sort of kept my attention. But I certainly like the the more factual ones and the ones you can dip into and get what you need. But when you want it, I think they're indispensable. John, if there's any listeners out there with any Victorian family photos or photos showing the East End in the Victorian period, what would you say to them? Give them to me now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> immediately um it's, it'd be great it'd be great if, if someone sort of just i just wish only one day that i'd be speaking to somebody somewhere and they'll say Alan, you know my uh, my grandfather lived in such and such a place or we lived in Rothschild buildings or whatever it was we've got loads of photographs of the local area or um, i know there are people around who've got lots of pictures of the area but i, I don't know them um they tend to be professional photographers and like we said earlier on that i post photographs on the site on websites um, that I've found taken by other people. They're great, I, lo I love that sort of thing, but I wish, I don't really have a lot of connections in that sort of field, in the, in the historical field, or I, mean, I know certain people who've lived in the area for a while, or used to live in there, but not enough to get those sort of photographs, and to be honest with you, yeah, if somebody suddenly came out and said, look, I've, I've got a couple of photographs, that, I think we're sort of hinting at like the Whitby connection, um, that was in Phil Mott's book. Um, brilliant. I mean, that's that's just like uh, manna from heaven, really. It's uh, for someone just to pop up and say, "Look, my my uncle or whoever it was got a load of photographs. Want to have a look? Yes, please. You know, no, no argument there." So yeah, I'd love it if if someone did. Um, and if anyone out there is listening, send them over. I mean, yeah, uh, I second that. Um, Philip was very lucky to get those photographs that he included in his book, so if uh, anyone out there has um, any uh, photogra photographs hiding in their attic, it, it's John Bennett's turn to get those. <laughs> to get that. Although uh, the, the pictures you have been putting up um, on the Casebook uh, website, uh, a lot of us haven't seen before, so even the mm. ones that are previously published in some of these books, um, some of the older books, um, they're all uh, new to us, so we appreciate you well, contributing so, those. Well, a lot of the ones that I get interested in when I find them are ones that aren't actually from that long ago. Um, a key, well, I mentioned earlier on about you know this sort of period in the in the sixties and seventies when they were just pulling down slums. That's when we lost places like a lot of murder sites. We lost the Rothschild buildings, uh, Brady Street dwellings, but all these sort of big impositorium buildings that um, you know, are quite important in the history of the area and yet they were still there you know, within my lifetime, within our lifetime. Um, if, I'd have, if I'd have gone down to the East End three years earlier, I would have seen such and such a building and things like that. And the photographs that I, I enjoy looking at are the ones where you, you literally see the last legs of this, these old sort of Victorian um, buildings or streets or whatever it is, even if even if the buildings are gone, you know, like uh, Lulsworth Street and Fall Street and Flower and Dean Street, even if the buildings aren't there, 
that's what they were like until about 1982 or something like that. It's a transitional period, and you don't see that very often, so I get quite quite excited when I see these sort of things. We see a lot of the Victorian stuff, and some things repeat themselves quite often, but these ones are quite quite rare to find, and when you do find them, they, it's quite interesting to see it, because it's like the old world in, in the mods, it's just they're about to leave us. So I like, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of those ones. Well, all right. We've uh, reached about an hour, and um, we want to thank you, John Bennett, for being on the show today. Thank you. We had some <laughs> audio problems the first half, mm-hmm. um, but they uh, improved immensely once Robert McLaughlin dropped off, so um, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep that in mind for next Sunday. <laughs> now, uh, look for John Bennett's book, E1, A Journey Through Whitechapel and Spitalfields Past and Present. That's scheduled for release in November by Five Leaves Publishing. And we want to thank you again for being on the show and for sharing um, your mini photographs um, on the Casebook website. And we all look forward to your book coming out. Thank you very much. And you have been listening to RipperCast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This was episode 12, The East Ender, John Bennett and Photographic History of the East End. With John Bennett in North London, Allie Ryder coming from Virginia. Robert McLaughlin was in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Mike Covell was in Hull in the UK. And I'm Jonathan Mangus. And next Sunday... We will be having our Edo's Victim show with our special guest, Neil Bell. So I hope you all listen and enjoy this show and stay tuned for next Sunday's podcast. And thanks, everyone, for participating. And we thank you for listening. See you next week.